This is the Lang Money Hour, where smart money talks on KQB with expert advice from CPA, attorney, and retirement and estate planning expert Jim Lang, the best-selling author of Retire Secure and The Roth Revolution, Pay Taxes Once and Never Again. Now on the air and online worldwide at paytaxeslater.com, get ready to talk smart money. Hello and welcome to this edition of the Lang Money Hour, where smart money talks. I'm your host, David Baer, here in the KQV studio with Jim Lang, CPA, attorney, and author of two best-selling books, Retire Secure and The Roth Revolution, Pay Taxes Once and Never Again. The LGBT community rightfully rejoiced last June when the U.S. Supreme Court struck down the Defense of Marriage Act. That landmark decision has unleashed an ongoing tide of legal reevaluations. Recently, Attorney General Eric Holder announced the federal government will recognize same-sex marriages, quote, to the greatest extent possible under the law. In addition to the estate tax issues on which DOMA was adjudicated, federal law has some 1,100 places where a person's marital status can determine legal protections and responsibilities, from Social Security and student aid to immigration rights and spousal benefits for veterans. And because each state has its own statutes in many of these issues, myriad other considerations come into play, even in jurisdictions like Pennsylvania that don't presently recognize same-sex marriage. To help sort through these issues, we welcome Professor Anthony Infanti to this edition of the Lang Money Hour. Associate Dean at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law, he focuses on issues of sexual orientation and the law. He writes widely on the subject, and his book, Everyday Law for Gays and Lesbians and Those Who Care About Them, accessibly explains how the law applies to and impacts LGBT lives. It's sure to be an interesting and informative hour, and listeners, since our show is live, please join the conversation by calling the KQV studios at 412-333-9385. That's 412-333-9385. And with that, I'll say hello, Jim, and welcome, Professor Infanti. Welcome, Tony. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, One of the things that really impressed me about your book, and it was the same thing, actually, with Evan Wolfson's book, even though both of you are fine attorneys, very scholarly, and um, really could not have higher credentials, what was really striking to me was not just the legal analysis, but the, I'll call it the human interaction, the human empathy side that, that frankly, I, I wish a lot of people, particularly those who are against same-sex marriage, and um, not open to LGBT issues could read. And in the early part of your book, you said, and this is a direct quote, when I examine the social and legal terrain that surrounds us, I find us situated somewhere far short of unqualified acceptance that we seek and a mere stone's throw from the unadulterated hostility that defines our past. Now, this book was written let's say, maybe six or seven years ago. Do you still believe this today, or is the landscape changing a little bit? Uh, The landscape's changed, I think, quite a lot, but we still aren't that far from the time when there was unadulterated hostility. I mean, I'm not that old. I still remember it. I grew up with it. You know, I lived it. Um, I still sometimes, unfortunately, have to live with it. Um, But we still are far short of the unqualified acceptance aspect of things as well. I mean, I think, you know, there's been a lot of movement in particular on same-sex marriage. We've seen a lot of change over the past just couple of years um, in the number of states that recognize same-sex marriage. But I think what often gets lost um, when people think about these things is the difference between 
formal, what we call, you know, what usually legal scholars call formal equality versus substantive e equality, which is the difference between having a law that says you're equal and actually being treated equal in real life. Um, they're two different things, and especially when you look at, you know, some of the more recent you know, cases that are extending the right to same-sex marriage in Virginia or in Utah. Those are things that are coming from the courts. It's not like it's coming from, you know, a felt need among all of the people in those states to extend equality to same-sex couples. It's, you know, judges deciding that that's the way it should be in states that are otherwise relatively hostile um, to same-sex couples. Do you think that is changing? I know in my own case, my daughter is 19 years old, and she's just totally oblivious um, to LGBT issues. That is, she just kind of doesn't even think of it as a big deal. And she's that way also uh, with race. And and hopefully there's a whole generation coming up like that. And I know that you're working as a, as a professor. You're dealing with, with um, students older than her. But do you see that as a generational difference where, let's say, people like me in their 50s might be a little bit less open-minded but our children and ultimately our grandchildren will be more open-minded? Oh, I mean, there's definitely a generational aspect to it. I mean, there's, and that's been clear for a while now that, you know, the younger generation has always been more open, the older generation's less open. I mean, and, you know, over the long haul, I think it's, you know, we're going to be moving towards much closer towards unqualified acceptance, but it's going to be over the long haul. And it's not to say that everyone who's younger is necessarily on board and, you know, unqualifiedly accepting or that anybody LGBT who's older folks. is necessarily not accepted. Exactly. Yeah, there's, I know plenty of people who are on the older end of things and are right. more than accepting. Yeah. Well, how far, how far have, actually have we come? And, and let's say it's a two-pronged question, both legally and, in effect, substantively. And then how far do we have to go? I mean, how far we've come, you know, it's quite far. I mean, since I was, you know, I was born in the 60s. I mean, we've come way far since Stonewall, um, since 1969. And we've gone quite a long distance. But, you know, and when you look back, I mean, you look right. to your past, you say, oh, I've come so far. But then when you look forward and say, okay, well, how far do we still need to go? And so we're making a lot of progress on same-sex marriage. Um, still, you know, you only have about 17 states in the District of Columbia that have same-sex marriage right now. So there's still quite a lot of states that don't have it. Um, and then there's a lot to life beyond marriage. I mean, you know, marriage is not unimportant, but it's not the only thing in life. There's lots of other aspects of your life that even if we have marriage equality will still be affected. Well, one of the, one of the stories in your book, and again, I, I salute you because you are a scholarly attorney, but your book is written at a very human level. You talk about just the, the really terrible experiences that you've had, even just going to a, a diner and ordering a meal and being treated really just miserably um, by the weight person that might not even represent the management of the ownership. Um, is this still some of the things that you're talking about when you say, say substantive equality? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's that, you know, substantive equality is kind of the everyday aspect of it is, you know, people are, are people actually treating you equally or even under the law, are you actually being treated equally or is it just they're saying you're equal, but then in reality it doesn't mm -hmm. pan out that way. Um, and that's still... I think happens even in, you know, even in places that you think of as, you know, very accepting. I mean, you know, one of the stories in the book and I, and when I was asked to write the book, I wanted to, you know, do it with 
the narratives in there because I felt that it was really important that people be able to not just see what the law was, but connect and see how things really happen to people, you know, why it matters, how it would fit in a, in a very concrete type situation. But I even talk about, you know, when I worked in New York as an attorney before I came to Pittsburgh to teach, you know, and people usually think of New York and big New York law firms as very accepting places, very liberal places, but was clearly subject to job discrimination there. I mean, we're, you know, I had one partner that I worked for, that I worked with, I didn't work for, um, who I shared a secretary with who actually forbade my secretary from doing work for me because I was gay. I mean, that's... You know, I mean, it's crazy that you think that kind of thing happens, but that was the late 90s in New York City, and it's not something that people would expect right. to have happened, but did. Um, well, let, let's maybe go back to the legal side, because you're probably, um, well, actually, you're an expert in both, but you said there are 17 states that right now currently recognize same-sex marriage. Um, and, you know, basically, practically, on almost on a daily basis, you read about some court <laughs> case. Mm -hmm. Do you see a trend and do you have some feel for what we can likely expect in terms of changes in the law? Let's just say either with regards to same-sex marriage or some of the other issues that I hope to address. Yeah, I mean, with same-sex marriage, I mean, I think we're, you know, we're on a trajectory of, you know, eventually same-sex marriage is going to be legal everywhere in the U.S. E I mean, even the states that have constitutional <coughs> amendments against yeah, it. Even the, because at some point, I mean, because you're seeing all these new cases that are mm -hmm. coming out, it's all basically federal courts applying the federal constitution after the Supreme Court case last June, the Windsor case, um, and basically saying that, you know, their read of the Windsor case is that, you know, same-sex marriage is basically going to have to be recognized everywhere. It's, it's kind of the import of what's happening, that it, it's violating equal protection or due process mm -hmm. to not extend same-sex marriage, I mean, extend marriage to all same-sex couples. And so, I mean, I think that's coming down the pike. It's just a matter of how long it's going to take um, because you see the, you know, the courts in these individual cases being on board with it. Um, but the Supreme Court you know, I mean, you get kind of a different signal from them, at least right now, because obviously if they wanted to extend the right to same-sex marriage already, they, they might have tried to do that in the California case last right. year, which they didn't. And then when the Utah case went up to them on the decision to stay the appeal, I mean, you saw that they didn't say, oh, well, no, let's let things go, let, you know, let them continue to marry in Utah pending the appeals, which is what you would have expected them to do if they thought there was no way they could win. But no, they stayed the decision, which is basically, you know, kind of, a, I think a lot of people take as a signal from the Supreme Court that they don't want to move too far too fast um, and get too far ahead of everybody. And what about all the states that literally have constitutional amendments yeah. or that you would need a, a change in the state constitution to allow same-sex marriage? Uh, you don't need a change in the state constitution if what they're saying is, is that your federal constitutional rights are being violated. Because under the Constitution, there's an article in the Constitution that says that the federal constitution and federal law are the supreme law of the land, which means that if you know, a state law violates your federal constitutional rights, it will be struck down, and, and even if it's something in the mm -hmm. state constitution. So you're saying some of those states, no matter how resistant they are, if, if the Supreme Court says, hey same-sex marriage is fine, it's a violation of due process. If you don't have it, they don't right. get a vote. It'll no. override. And some of these, you know, the Virginia case, it was, you right. know, the Constitution and the state statute. Um, so the, if the federal Constitution can override both of those. Those state constitutional amendments were put in there in, in the beginning to make sure that state court judges couldn't say that, right. you know, that... Right. 
the state constitution overrode a state statute saying that same-sex marriage was prohibited. So they were put in there to be a check on the state judges. They have no ability to put a check on the federal judges. That was why during the Bush administration, people were trying to propose a federal constitutional amendment, because then that would tie the hands of the federal judges as well. Okay. All right. Well, you, you know, your, your, your book actually addresses many different areas. And one of the areas that seems to be a, a pretty important area, and as you who have spent 14 years as a law professor, um, education has to be pretty pretty important. And also as the, um, the father of, of a four-year-old girl who is about to enter our um, education system, um, where do you think we are in terms of our education system right now, where do you think we need to go? And if <laughs> let, let's appoint you for the uh, the education czar, what would you do about it? Yeah, well, being the education czar, I mean, one of the probably most important things I think is bullying and addressing bullying issues. I mean, bullying extends beyond just you know lesbian and gay kids being bullied or the kid, the children of lesbian and gay parents being bullied. Um, Naturally, it extends to lots of different situations where kids get bullied, but that's a really important one. I mean, it can make kids' lives miserable. Um, I mean, you know, that's why you have that whole campaign of it gets better. It's, you know, hang on because your life is so horrible now. I mean, you're trying to prevent kids from committing suicide or, you know, doing other things that just... Especially now with social media and mm-hmm. all of those things as well. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's there's all sorts of different ways for kids to get bullied. I mean, I think that's that's probably one of the most important things, making a safe atmosphere, you know, in which kids can go to school and get the education. I mean, the whole point of going to school is to get the education. It's not to go and be bullied um, by other kids to the point where it affects not only your education, but also your your life more generally. At, at a local level, is the do you know if the Fred Rogers Foundation is is doing work in that area? Because I, I, yeah. I have a client um, not, not in the LGBT community who is very interested in, in bullying air issues and I think that she was talking to the Fred Rogers Foundation and I know that that he he was successful in going to Congress and getting money for those issues when yeah. he was alive. Yeah, I don't I don't happen to know that. Yeah. Okay. All right, but 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 you're thinking that that is the I think that's a really important, you know, really important issue and, you know, sort of also you know, sensitizing schools to different types of families, different family forms so that way they can interact appropriately with parents um, is also important. All right. Um, well, on a more personal level, what what is it like being a parent with a same-sex partner and having a four-year-old daughter? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's definitely interesting. Um, you know, it's great being a parent, but people, I think, tend to think... Of, wait till she's 12 or 13. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, there's always those sorry, challenges. Sorry about that. Those are different for me than they are for anybody else. Um, but I think people, when they think of the LGBT community and they think of parenting, they tend to think of lesbians. They don't tend to think of gay men as, as parents. And so when you see two guys who are parents, you know, it's... People just don't expect that. I mean, you know, I can't tell you how many times when I've been, you know, on my own, because I'm, t- I'm the primary caregiver, so I take my daughter to daycare, drop her off, pick her up, do all the doctor's appointments, all that stuff. How many times I've been asked about my wife, I could not tell you. Um, because people just assume, because I'm a man, that I must, mm-hmm. you know, be married to a woman because I have a child. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's always that kind of interesting conversations that people want to have when they realize that, you know, you're not 
you know, heterosexual, that you're in a same-sex relationship, and you're a man, they always want to know how you manage to have that child. Um, you know, is she adopted? And we actually used a surrogate to have our child. So then they want to know all the details about the surrogacy. I mean, things that, you know, it, at a certain level, I don't, you, you don't necessarily mind sharing, but sometimes it's with people that you're not really, you don't know that right, well. Right, you level trust. Yeah, and you just wonder about why they have no boundaries to ask you all of these questions <laughs> that they probably would not ask say somebody who was straight who had say problems with fertility or something they wouldn't be probing all of these different things because they know they're sensitive subjects but mm, they don't seem to mind so much asking for all mm -hmm. the intricacies of you know using a surrogate to have a child well let's say somebody is actually being appropriate because you talk in your book about coming out and not just in a big way for big issues but but even those even the little ways mm -hmm. so how how do you respond to some of those questions if somebody says you know, well, where's your wife today, or doesn't your wife usually do this? Um, how how do you personally respond, and how would you, let's say, recommend other people respond? Yeah, and that's a that's actually a really good question because people think of coming out as like, okay, you come out once, so you know, you come out right. when you're in your early twenties. You come out for your whole life, over and over and over again. Every time you go somewhere new, you meet somebody new. They're going to usually presume that you're straight and not think that you're gay, and so then you have to decide are you going to tell them not tell them and frankly you know even for someone like me who you know i mean i'm out i've always been out at work you know i out in everything that i do when i write and things like that you know you're still making decisions about what to say i'm not always going to want to come out to everybody every single time sometimes it's just not worth it if it's just some passing thing two seconds or i'm not right. going to stop and spend 20 minutes explaining to them you know my family relationship and all this stuff. it's just okay i'm just going to take a pass on that one and move on um mm -hmm. but then you're also deciding when 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 do you want to divulge that when do you want to talk to people about it when is it worth it because sometimes it's just you know the return on the investment of all the time just isn't worth the effort yeah well i sure hope the education system has changed since you were um, in school, you know, you talk about what a terrible experience it was being in an all-male all dormitory. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, you know, sometimes things can get really supercharged. But even as a kid, you know, I was bullied as a child in elementary school, beat up, that kind of stuff. And, you know, that's, you know, kind of par for the course, I think, when you were gay, at least when I was growing up. And, I mean, I hope that it's different now. I mean, it'll be interesting to see how things go when my daughter enters elementary school. I mean, as right now, she's at the daycare at the right. university. So that's it. You know, it's kind of a very cocoon-like atmosphere, yeah. <laughs> you know, because you're dealing with you're people. Right. It's all people who are either faculty, staff, or students at the university, which is, you know, generally a pretty welcoming place. And so you have one kind of an atmosphere where I've not had any problems at all. Um, but then when you get into the elementary school, which is going to be a broader cross-section of a community, you never know what the interaction is going to be like, you know, how other kids' parents are going to think about you or what they're going to say. And you know how kids are. I mean, if the parents, if the kids hear the parents say something right. about somebody, then they're going to just repeat it in school. And then you have to deal with, you know, how do you talk to your child about this? How do you explain to them what's going on and why some other kid is making this comment that they found hurtful or they can't understand? And you have to try to figure out how to explain have, it. Have you had those conversations? Um, not yet. I haven't had, thankfully, right. thankfully, haven't had to have those conversations yet. But, you know, I mean, you know, you still get the the questions. I mean, you know, my daughter already at age four is, you know, starting to Notice edge the toward yeah. the questions about, you know, kind of like why she doesn't have a mom hanging around right. um, because all of the other kids do. I mean, you and know. everything she sees is, you know, oriented that way. Mm -hmm. Well, anyway, let's it's very fascinating, but let's take a break right now.
This is the Lang Money Hour, where smart money talks, featuring expert advice from CPA, attorney, and retirement and estate planning expert Jim Lang. More coming up right here on KQB. The Lang Money Hour continues on KQB AM 1410. For all your financial needs, turn to the Lang Financial Group in Squirrel Hill. For more information, visit online at paytaxeslater.com. Let's talk more smart money. And welcome back to the Lang Money Hour. I'm David Baer here with Jim Lang and Professor Anthony Infanti from the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. Uh, but before we get started, I want to report that Jim South Hills workshop for this Saturday is filled to capacity and people are being turned away. The next set of workshops that are similar in content will be offered on March 22nd at the Pittsburgh Golf Club in Squirrel Hill. Jim's also doing a special workshop session on March 29 in Monroeville with two hours on Roth IRA conversions, two hours on Social Security, and two hours on index investing and financial planning. If you're interested in attending either, the Lang Finan call the Lang Financial Offices at 412-521-2732. That's 521-2732 or visit paytaxeslater.com. That's paytaxeslater.com. And now back to the show. Tony, earlier you, you mentioned in effect uh, different types of discrimination. That is legal discrimination, what you're allowed to do on the law, and substance uh, or substantive discrimination. Maybe it doesn't have a specific law, but it occurs anyway. Uh, could you, why don't we start on the legal end? What is the state of law hiring a member of the LGBT community? Yeah, I mean, it really varies state by state. Um, the number of states that have laws that protect people against discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation or gender identity um, is below half. I mean, it's about, you know, roughly a little bit more than the number of states that have same-sex marriage. And of course, it's a lot of the states that have same-sex marriage right. are also in that same category. There's a lot of overlap. So it's about 20, 21 states. That and there's protect no protection in Pennsylvania no. either. No, not at the state level. No, not at the state. I mean, there's some at the local levels in different places, um, but not at the state level. So, I mean, you know, that's, you know, something that's really important. That's why I was mentioning before that, you know, people focus on marriage and, you know, marriage equality and the importance of that. And that's great. But even if you have marriage equality, if someone can fire you from your job because you're gay, you know, that's really, really important. That's your livelihood. I mean, so, you know, one part of your life is, you know, your personal life and, you know, who you're in a relationship with. But another part of it is if, if neither of you can actually make any money, you know, how much help is that marriage going to be? Um, so employment discrimination, housing discrimination usually goes hand in hand with that. Public accommodations discrimination, going back to the, to the diner type of a situation. I mean, those are all bases of, you know, potential discrimination that can have real effects on people's lives, you know, getting turned away from somewhere. And, you know, those are all things that aren't being addressed in the marriage equality fight. They're t completely separate from that and have been kind of put on the back burner. Um, well, then there's also substantive uh, discrimination. Let's even say that some of these laws, are, you know, did, did take place, but people either through more uh, outward actions or even just little innuendos could really make life miserable for somebody if they wanted to. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, there's having protections against discrimination and then there's proving that they've been violated 
or wanting to prove that they've been violated. Because, you know, even, you know, sometimes people who have been subject to discrimination won't want to press the claim because if they press the claim, that might be professional suicide for them because everyone looks at them as being the person Mm -hmm. who sued their employer or made this claim. And now they're afraid that they're going to make a claim against them because they're, you know, super sensitive to being discriminated against. And so, you know, there's a difference between having a right and being able to exercise the right or being protected by the right. Yeah, and I would imagine, you know, some people I would imagine um, just want to do their job and don't necessarily want to be, you know, the gay expert. You know, for example, you did happen to write a book about, you know, and by the way, I should repeat the name of the book because I I thought it was excellent. Um, And again, it's not a a deep lawyerly book. I thought it was more in the Evan Wolfson tradition of being written by a fine attorney, but really... The, the humanity more than more than readable i think it's the humanity and the compassion that that really come out that i think is really important um you know i i, I spend my days and i'm working on the book retire secure for same-sex couples and i'm you know we're trying to optimize social security strategies and i'm trying to optimize ira and retirement plan strategies and i and it's good for me to read this because I kind of forget about the human element. Anyway, Everyday Law for Gays and Lesbians and Those Who Care About Them by Anthony Infanti, and that is available at, at Amazon.com. Um, so you you chose to write a book um, that, that certainly has a lot of the law in it. Um, you chose to do that, but maybe you would be more interested in torts or contract law or constitutional law and that you might not, you know, you just might happen to be a gay law professor who doesn't have particular interest in gay issues. Uh, do you see that and what is appropriate just to let those people do their constitutional law and their tort law and leave them alone. Yeah, I mean, there's there's always that divide. I mean, there's plenty of people that do the same kind of thing that I do, but don't want to focus on LGBT issues, even though they're gay. They, they just don't want to do it because they don't want to be pegged or stereotyped as the person who's, you know, they're the professional gay in the sense that they're not a gay professional, but they're professionally gay, that they, you know, do all sorts of mm-hmm. gay-related stuff for work, and that's that's all they do. There's plenty of people who just want to do their job and go along with their lives, and, you know, they happen to be gay, and that's fine, and they're out, but they don't want that to be the focus of everything. And then there's other people that, you know, are like me, who are more comfortable with, you know, being kind of more the professional gay, where my work focuses, not my work when I was in practice, you know, doing law, I was a tax attorney, um, but, you know, since I've been writing and teaching, I focus more on LGBT issues, not in, I mean, not every day in my classes, but in the writing that I do. All right. So, actually, uh, just out of, partly out of curiosity, how many classes that you do you teach that have LGBT issues? Um, not that you don't bring it to other classes, but let's say they're basically geared around LGBT yeah, issues. I don't teach anything that's purely LGBT. So I don't teach. I mean, because we on occasion have classes about law and sexuality. I don't teach that. Um, I teach all tax classes. I try to bring the LGBT issues into class where I can, where it's appropriate, um, to try to open up students' eyes, especially in the basic federal income tax class where you know they're just kind of learning about the tax system. They're often kind of wary of it, skeptical of the class. They think it's going to be boring and lots of rule memorization and stuff. And just kind of it helps to bring home that and in many other ways, you know, how it affects people's lives and how it really, you know, has an impact on people's lives and how the tax system 
interacts with people's sexual orientation or their family lives because you know, the tax system tracks everything we do. I mean, it hits all the different aspects of our lives, and it hits us differently depending on who we are. Well, now you're getting a little closer to my area of expertise. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but, but I know that you come at it from a different angle, and maybe um, if I hear a little bit about the way you're coming from it and then let's say some of the things that I'm doing, it might be enlightening to some of our readers. So there is a uh, recent revenue ruling that, mm -hmm. that was pretty profound, and I'm more of an income tax guy. Um, I think now most of the tax attorneys are switching to income taxes because with the larger estate tax exemptions, I think it's something like $5.3 million, and if you're married, it's 106 not mm -hmm. that many of us have those kinds of estates, and I've always been an IRA guy, a retirement plan guy, a social security guy. So that's the areas that I am focusing on in, in the book that I'm writing, Retire Secure for Same-Sex Couples, is really the most important chapters are about IRAs, retirement plans, and social security. But I know that there are, uh, and there's big, and all that is, is new and recent, but I know that you are also a tax attorney, mm -hmm. and maybe you could comment on the most recent revenue ruling, the implications of it, and some of the strategies that some same-sex couples could use. Yeah, strategies, I'm not so sure about strategies, but I mean, because I come at the revenue ruling kind of the same way that I come at the stuff from the book, which is thinking about the human impact of it, you know, how is it going to affect people, what's going to happen, looking at it from the perspective of, you know, how is it going to apply and how do people navigate it? Um, because when you look at the revenue ruling, and the revenue ruling is more precise than the stuff that they put in the questions on the website that they have, um, but when you read the revenue ruling, there's lots of gaps. I mean, basically, the way that I look at the revenue ruling after reading it um, is to be not all that much different than what DOMA was like for same-sex couples. Just for our listeners, what exactly is the revenue oh, ruling? Here? sure. So uh, the IRS can put out guidance in lots and lots of different ways. Um, they can do regulations. They can put out a notice or an announcement or revenue ruling. They can give a private letter ruling to an individual taxpayer. A revenue ruling is a public form of guidance that the IRS intends taxpayers to rely upon. Um, and so even doing that was a big difference from the way the IRS had given guidance to same-sex couples before. The rare occasion when they did it before the uh, Supreme Court case came down was always private guidance. It was always stuff that you could not cite in court, that you were not supposed to rely on. It wasn't legal precedent. Mm -hmm. It was something you couldn't cite in court. Revenue rulings are meant to be, they're public and they're meant to be relied upon by taxpayers. So that was a big shift all by itself. Um, but yeah, when is, you. Is there a short statement of what that ruling was? Okay, so the ruling basically says, and this is very basic because right. then I'll talk to you about kind of some of the problems with it. Um, I mean, it basically says that if you're married in a state that recognizes same-sex marriage, then the IRS is going to recognize your marriage. I mean, basically, they're adopting what we call a place of celebration rule for determining whether you're married or not. Um, and another thing that they say is people who are in civil unions and domestic partnerships, their relationships will not be recognized, even if they're the legal equivalent of a marriage. Now, that that's very simple kind of on its face, but there's some really difficult questions that are built into that um, because from the perspective of the law, I mean, there can be different kinds of marriages. I mean, in the sense of 
Okay, so, you know, the revenue ruling, the way it's written, all that it talks about is the situation where you have, say, a couple who's living in Massachusetts, they get married in Massachusetts that recognizes same-sex marriage, they stay in Massachusetts for a while, and then, say, one of them gets a job in Pennsylvania, and they move to Pennsylvania. So they, you know, were married in a state that recognizes same-sex marriage, you know, everything was all going fine and dandy. Then they moved to a place that all at once says, we're not going to recognize your marriage anymore. And the IRS is saying, well, you know, we're not going to stop recognizing their marriage simply because they moved from a state where they had a valid same-sex marriage to a state where they refused to recognize that valid marriage. That's great. Um, and that's pretty much the way the law should work. The problem is, is that there's also lots of people who live in states that don't recognize same-sex marriage, leave the state, get married, come immediately back. So just leaving to go out and get married and they come back. So you think of a couple from Pennsylvania who crosses the border to Maryland or New Jersey or New York, gets married, comes back to Pennsylvania. We call that an evasive marriage because you're trying to evade the marriage prohibition in Pennsylvania. That's the only reason really for leaving the state is you're evading the marriage prohibition in Pennsylvania. In Pennsylvania. That, kind of a, that kind of a marriage, because the IRS in the revenue ruling repeatedly talks about, will recognize valid marriages it raises a question of the legal validity of the marriage. Now, under the law, when we talk about evasive marriages, the way that we usually deal with it is that the state where the, co where the couple lives is the state that controls whether that, valid is, that marriage is valid or not. So in Pennsylvania, the rules that have been adopted in Pennsylvania is if, you know, in the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania said this, you know, if you're, you know, from Pennsylvania and you leave the state to get married and you come back, basically Pennsylvania has the, rela the closest relationship with the couple. Pennsylvania law is basically going to determine whether you're married or not if that marriage violates a strong public policy in Pennsylvania. And so the problem is, is that we have a state defense of marriage act that very specifically, I mean, it's very specific in the statute, it not just says, you know, that marriage is between a man and a woman. It says it is the longstanding public policy and longstanding and strong public policy of the state of Pennsylvania that marriage is between one man and one woman, and that's it. And that would seem to say that under Pennsylvania precedent that that marriage, even though it's, you know, lawful to get married in Penn, in Maryland or New Jersey or New York, would not be valid. And if it's not valid, then under the revenue ruling, it would seem like that marriage should not be recognized for federal tax purposes. And that and the IRS doesn't get specific about these evasive marriage situations, even though most of the states in the country are states that don't recognize same-sex marriage. So you're going to have a lot of couples in that situation where they've left and gotten married and come home. Yeah, and, and, and by the way, um, usually I like to agree with my guests and be <laughs> cordial. No, that's um, fine. I, I actually have a, a different reading. I thought that the revenue ruling was relatively clear and that they even use the word a jurisdiction of celebration. And actually, one of the main uh, strategies, talking about strategies that I am recommending in the book, is that for, let's say, a Pennsylvania resident, and I would agree with you completely, for Pennsylvania purposes, for Pennsylvania inheritance tax purposes, for many state rights, a marriage in New York or New Jersey or, or Maryland would not be valid. Um, but it's my reading that for federal income tax purposes, and perhaps more importantly for my purposes, the treatment of IRAs and retirement plans, which is really my area, um, they will recognize a marriage of New York or some jurisdiction that allows same-sex marriages. And it's really a very important question because 
some of the you know I I I like I'm a strategist. I'm a chess player and a bridge player, and in the summary, I have a whole bunch of strategies that combine social security, Roth IRA conversions. Um, naming beneficiaries of IRAs and retirement plans, using strategies like apply and suspend, and a whole series of things. And the difference literally is, and the, the chart that I have in front of me that's part of the book, is is one way you're literally broke um, starting at 62 and ending at age 90, and the other way you have well over a million dollars. So I, I'm, I thought that that revenue ruling was for federal income tax purposes was clear enough that a Pennsylvania resident could go to Maryland or one of those states, get married, come back, and the federal government will recognize that for income tax purposes and for IRA and retirement plan purposes. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, I don't think the revenue ruling is clear on that at all. Um, because the way it's written, it's written as basically all of the examples, everything that they talk about in the ruling are all people who live in a state where, that recognizes same-sex marriage, get married there, and then move somewhere else. They're always talking about that problem. And in fact, the, they cite an old revenue ruling as the basis for the position they're taking. The old revenue ruling is about people who enter into a common-law marriage in a state that recognizes common-law marriage, and then later move somewhere else mm-hmm. um, to a state that doesn't recognize common-law marriage. So all of the examples, everything in the revenue ruling, the way it's written, is all written for that type of situation, what we call a migratory marriage, where you're married someplace that recognizes your marriage, and then you move somewhere else. And I agree, it's an important question. The problem is, is I don't think that the revenue ruling actually addresses that question head-on. Um, I mean, there's a little bit of ambiguity in the revenue ruling, but even putting the ambiguity aside, you get into the question of they'd still, still repeatedly say that the marriage has to be valid. Um, and to be valid, even some of these states of celebration, like Maryland and New York and New Jersey, w- apply similar rules to the one in Pennsylvania that would say if a couple just comes here to get married, the state that really has the most significant relationship with the couple is not us. We married them but the place where they came from mm-hmm. and where they went back to afterwards. And that state's law is the one that should control because that's what these states do when their own people leave um, is apply that same type of rule uh, to determine which state's law controls the validity of the relationship. Well, DOMA was kind of adjudicated on issues of uh, you know, this discrimination. Yes. So, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's, it raises similar similar problems as DOMA did in the sense that, you know, part of the discomfort that the Supreme Court had with DOMA was based on federalism grounds. The idea that, you know, usually it's the states that get to determine who's married and who's not married, um, but it was the federal government who was determining who was married and not married. They were saying, even if you're married under state law, we won't recognize it. Now it's the opposite. It's saying, well, even if your state says you're not married, we're going to say you are married. It creates that same type of tension. Well, this situation is certainly fluid, but we've got to take a quick break now, and we'll come back, and we can continue the conversation. This is the Lang Money Hour, where smart money talks, featuring expert advice from CPA, attorney, and retirement and estate planning expert Jim Lang. More coming up right here on KQB. The Lang Money Hour continues on KQB AM 1410. For all your financial needs, turn to the Lang Financial Group in Squirrel Hill. For more information, visit online at paytaxeslater.com. Let's talk more smart money. And welcome back to the Lang Money Hour. 
with Jim Lang and Professor Anthony Infanti from the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. And we're pleased to announce that Jim South Hill's workshops for this Saturday have been filled to capacity and people are being turned away. The next set of workshops that are similar in content will be offered March 22nd at the Pittsburgh Golf Club in Squirrel Hill. Jim's also doing a special workshop session on March 29th in Monroeville with two hours on Roth IRA conversions, two hours on Social Security, and two hours on index investing and financial planning. If you're interested in attending either, call the Lang offices now at 412-521-2732. That's 521-2732. Or visit www.paytaxeslater.com. All right. We're here with Tony Infanti. Uh, author of a book that I would recommend, um, Everyday Law for Gays and Lesbians and Those Who Care About Them. And like I had mentioned earlier, I'd say the book is more on a human probably than, than even a legal uh, level. So um, we've had Evan Wolfson on, who is uh, the great champion of the same-sex right to mm-hmm. marry. And what an articulate and active spokesman he is. And, and, and by the way, if anybody is interested in listening to that interview or mm-hmm. reading the transcript, if they go to www.outestateplanning.com, again, that's www.outestateplanning.com, or another website, paytaxeslater.com, uh, that interview and transcript is available on both those websites. Um, but are you basically on the same page as Evan on the right to marry? And will the, and if, states like even Pennsylvania um, open up the right to marry, do you think that other hurdles like employment discrimination will also have a better chance of changing? Yeah, I mean, typically I think in the past it's gone in the other direction. Usually, you know, a lot of these states have had employment protections or anti-discrimination for housing or public accommodations and sort of build, you know, so there's this building kind of acceptance and then got to the point of accepting same-sex marriage. I think in the next kind of 10, 15 years, you're going to see it in the other direction because, I mean, I think same-sex marriage is going to come sooner rather than later. And I think it's going to outpace and be faster than all of these other protections. And then it's going to be a matter of trying to battle, you know, that. And part of the problem of doing that sometimes can be if people think you've already won, they mm-hmm. wonder why you need anything else. Um, so if, if people think, okay, well, you have this right to marry, and you're like, aren't we all equal now? Like, why do you need any help anymore? And so then it becomes sometimes a little bit harder, actually, to get the protections that you really do need because people think you don't need them, you know often incorrectly thinking that. Well, we do have a national audience, and I know, you know, we get a lot of comments and, and calls from actually outside the state, but we're, we're broadcasting from Pennsylvania, and the majority of the listeners, I think, are local. Uh, what do you see happening in Pennsylvania? Because I know there's lawsuits uh, being brought up right mm-hmm. now, and I, I actually didn't know that you were quite active with the ACLU, but apparently you, you at least were or are. Um, and is what is going on politically in the state when we have a big election coming up for governor's race. Is that going to be much of a, a factor either way? Yeah, I mean, it'll be, it'll be interesting. And I was on the board of the ACLU until my daughter was born. And then, I, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> then I stepped back because time, I, right. yeah, yeah. I had to make time. Um, 
but they do fabulous work for the LGBT community, and, and they have a lawsuit that's going to go, it's scheduled to go to trial in June, uh, challenging the state same-sex marriage ban. Um, and in contrast to a lot of other a lot of other lawsuits, usually these lawsuits are done on what's called summary judgment. So they just file a lot of papers, and then they send something to the judge saying, okay, we want you to do judgment based on the law, in essence. And the ACLU here in Pennsylvania is taking a different tack. They actually want to have a trial. They actually want to bring, you know, bring the plaintiffs up and have the plaintiffs testify so they can you know, put a real human face on what's going on and how the marriage ban affects you know, real families mm-hmm. and real people, which I think, I mean, is to their great credit that they're trying to put a real face on what's happening and not just have it be done on you know, papers and legal arguments and that's it. So I think, I think they'll win um, at the end of the day. It may take some time in the sense that you know, I wouldn't be surprised with the administration we have now that if they win at the district court level that you know, the state would not try to appeal it to the Third Circuit Court of Appeals. Um, I mean, so there could be appeals that go on, but I mean, eventually I think they'll win. But, you know, getting back to the, you know, question of does having legal rights mean acceptance? I mean, even if we do have same-sex marriage in Pennsylvania, that's no guarantee that the very conservative kind of center and T top part of the state is going to all at once be accepting of same-sex couples or, you know, non-traditional families. By the way, this is a a momentous moment in radio where an attorney is actually predicting the outcome of a (laughs) Pennsylvania Supreme Court case. You don't see that very often. No, no, it's a federal district court case. Oh, oh, I'm I'm sorry. No, Um, I wouldn't be surprised if they... One, I mean, that's all the other federal district court cases that have been coming out recently. They've won, and I think if they put a human face on the case, I mean, I wouldn't see why. And didn't the Attorney General, Catherine, Kathleen Kane, say she wasn't going to right. defend the law, and now Corbett is the... Yes, yeah. All right. Um, there's some other areas um, that the LGBT community, in my opinion, should be concerned with, and one of them that you might not think is all that important, but I think when there is a health problem, it becomes very important, is some of the differences in treatment of health care. Mm-hmm. And I thought, and we could talk about the tax issues, and and by the way, the tax issues are important and they are favorable, um, and we're getting the not very many minutes left, but <laughs> if, 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 you could, if you could tell us a little bit about uh, what people can do to protect their health rights, if you will. Yeah, I mean, people should be, you know, thinking about all the different things that they can do to protect, you know, themselves medically. I mean, I think of, like, durable powers of attorney for, you know, finances and also for medical care to make sure that you have somebody who's appointed and who knows what your wishes are. So that way, you know, they can, you know, carry out your wishes and also have access to you, um, and, you know, this is another area where there's a difference between formal equality and, you know, substantive equality. Because there's been lots of situations in the past where you have somebody who actually, you know, you have a same-sex couple where one person has a power of attorney over the other for health care. Um, and the one person will become incapacitated, they're sick, and they're in the hospital, and the hospital hasn't allowed access to the other partner. And they'll wait for the, the quote-unquote family to come, and then the family will have to intervene on their behalf and say, yes, you have to let them in. And sometimes it's been horrible situations where, the, you know, the person will have died or be, you know, now comatose and they can't talk to them anymore by the time they actually get in there. And so, you know, the difference between having a piece of paper that says that you have some rights and some powers and actually being able to exercise those is oftentimes, you know, a big difference. And, you know, part of that is training people in hospitals and, you know, making sure that there's no discrimination in that area as well. So, I mean, you know, making sure your rights are protected is really important in doing everything you can do, but then also keeping in mind that, 
you know, it doesn't always translate into reality. And sometimes even family members who seem like they're all on board and okay with your relationship all at once become not so okay when their son or daughter or brother or sister is now incapacitated or dying or whatever. And, and all at once the things right. break down. Uh, we advertise this radio show uh, as being revolving around LGBT issues. Um, and I would imagine that we have a higher percentage on this particular show of the LGBT community, but probably the majority of the listeners are not part of the LGBT community. What advice or what could you tell um, people who are not part of the LGBT community? What should they be doing? Let's say that you do have a sympathetic listener. Um, I know Evan Wolfson was a very big advocate of talking about it, explaining mm -hmm. it. Um, bringing up these issues, what what advice would you have for somebody who is who is open minded, but maybe not has not done anything either politically or actively? Yeah, and, and I don't think you have to be awfully politically or a political or active about it. I mean, I think a lot of it is usually everyday type of situations and just challenging discrimination when you see it, challenging presumptions when you see it, you know, because. It, as I mentioned before, you know, if you're the LGBT person, you're not always wanting, wanting to navigate every different situation. And sometimes you, you know, it's helpful to have somebody else speak up um, and say something. Um, and sometimes, sometimes you're not around and you need somebody to speak up and say something. I'll tell a quick story from, you know, when I was, when, after I came out. And so I had, you know, both of my parents, you know, talked to them. My dad wasn't so cool with me being gay and he ended up turning around and, and becoming, you know, kind of one of my greatest advocates. But my mom worked in a school, um, in a middle school, and she was in the teacher's room one day, and one of the teachers was just going on some anti-gay tirade. And, you know, my mom came home. She was so upset. My dad turned around to her and said, you have a big mouth. Why didn't you say anything? Why didn't you say something? You know, why didn't you challenge that person? And that's the advice that I would give people, is when you hear something like that, you challenge the person. Um, you know, say something. That's the most you can do is, you know, especially when people feel comfortable because they don't think anyone gay is around and they think they can give voice right. to these kinds of opinions, challenge them. That's great advice. Well, and on that note, unfortunately, we run out of time. So I'll say thanks for listening to this edition of the Lang Money Hour, where smart money talks. And thanks also to Professor Anthony Infanti from the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. Thanks for listening to the Lang Money Hour, where smart money talks. Check out the show archives and listen on demand anytime at paytaxeslater.com. KQV listeners can receive free tickets to Jim Lang's Pittsburgh area workshops and more. Call the Lang Financial Group at 412-521-2732 and reserve your seats and meet Jim Lang in person. Or visit paytaxeslater.com. That's paytaxeslater.com.